Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 10th, 2022. We seem to be stumbling into a post-COVID age, but of course, it's not that complicated. We can't just leave it behind. I've had many conversations, both during and after COVID, uh, about what it means, what its significance is, and how we can indeed get beyond it. Uh, I had a doctor a couple of weeks ago from Nashville, Tennessee, suggesting Alex uh, Jahangir, who heads up Tennessee's COVID control uh, unit, who says that we can only get beyond COVID if we fix some of America's fundamental social and cultural problems, perhaps political problems too. Um, uh, Brian Michael Jenkins was on the show recently telling us that uh, recovering from COVID is really up to us. It's all about human agency, seizing back control from the pandemic. Uh, others believe that we need to focus on inequality as a consequence of COVID. Stephen Thrasher, for example, was on the show recently talking about a viral underclass. Uh, it seems as if COVID has brought out, exaggerated, compounded all the best and worst things about America. That was what uh, Eli Saslow, a, uh, a Washington Post writer, prize-winning writer, has suggested. Um, and it's complicated things. Uh, there are parallel pandemics, according to Robert Pearl, a very distinguished American physician. The parallel pandemics of COVID itself, anxiety and gun violence. Meanwhile, uh, some people have suggested, like William J. Bernstein, uh, that there's other kinds of viruses, non-medical viruses, the conspiracy virus. And uh, Bernstein argues in his delusion of crowds that... Um, the conspiracy virus is just as dangerous as COVID. In other words, I think what many of our shows have suggested is it's hard to separate COVID from other social, political, cultural issues. And that's an area that we are revisiting again today uh, with my guest, the co-author of a new book, Pandemic Politics, The Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID. It's a book that suggests that our crisis of democracy and politics uh, was compounded and brought out by COVID. Um, Thomas B. Papinski is a professor of political science at uh, Cornell University. He's one of the co-authors of the book, and he's joining us from Ithaca, New York. Uh, Thomas, did I get your book? Have I got your book right? Is it about the complexity of life in, uh, in a post-COVID America where we can't quite escape it because it's so rooted it's so entangled in many of our structural problems yes um what i'd add to that though is we see our book as not only identifying those complexities and the entanglements of the pandemic with politics but also as telling us something about how we got from the uh the pre-covid state of affairs in the united states to the state that we're in right now so we think that one of the contributions that readers can get from reading the book is seeing exactly how that process played out sort of in real time. So we can chronicle, for example, what we were thinking in March 2020 
and trace those moments in American politics and society on forward until the present day. Uh, Tom, um, the, talking about 2020, in March 2020, The Economist, a, a relatively nonpartisan English magazine, in a, a leader about the politics of pandemics, observed that, and I think there's some truth to this, that all governments will struggle, some will struggle more than others. In a post-COVID world, what governments do you think have struggled the most? How would you, how would you score the achievements of the American government in terms of responding to COVID? Well, I think the United States government um, can count itself as having done okay in some regards and pretty poorly in other in other regards. And I think that's true in different ways for different countries around the world. I think the one of the if you were to look at the ledger on the plus side, the United States acted very quickly to uh, pour a bunch of money into developing some of the world's most uh, amazing, highly effective and very safe vaccines that have saved millions upon millions of lives since they're introduction. They've allowed us to go back into, uh, into something approaching normal life again. Um, on the negative side, in particular in the United States, we saw this really dramatic partisan uh, politicking around COVID, which seems to have taken a public health crisis, which by any stretch of the matter should not have been a partisan issue at all, and turn it into an area which is fundamentally imbued with partisan overtones as well. And the result of that uh, is in addition to having the United States has lost over a million people, most of whom uh, died from preventable deaths and hundreds of thousands of whom died after the, after the vaccines were widely available, um, as well as a continuing kind of simmering politics of suspicion about public health that has moved beyond uh, COVID itself to, uh, to other areas that were generally previously areas of partisan agreement, such as vaccinations for children are generally a good idea. Tom, are you suggesting then that the government of America, particularly Trump, but even Biden, both left and right, have blood on their hands when it comes to the pandemic? I'd be very careful about putting it in such stark terms. Um, all, and I, although I do think that it's, it's true that Americans, America's po politicians did politicize the pandemic, uh, this was true both for President Trump, who was in office at the time, and for then-candidate Biden, who wrote early in February even that, that the Trump administration would not be able to handle the pandemic properly, and he was proven to be correct. But I do think that a government that openly and explicitly um, uh, talked about quack cures such as uh, uh, um, injecting bleach into one's veins as a way to treat the virus uh, can be held responsible in, in no small degree for some of the deaths that have that have followed as a consequence. I think there was a moment, and my co-authors and I argue this, in March 2020, when President Trump could have chosen some other course of action. He could have chosen very clearly to um, emphasize the health of the uh, American populace uh, over his fears about the electoral consequences of the pandemic, and he chose instead to try to pretend that things were going to be as normal as possible for as long as possible. And millions of uh, people, or hundreds of thousands of Americans died as a result of that. So you are suggesting, you won't put it in, in that language, but it sounds to me like you are suggesting that Trump has blood on his hands. Are you saying that had he pursued um, a more equitable, a more reasonable, a more scientific policy, 
uh, many hundreds of thousands of Americans wouldn't have died. That sounds to me like uh, you're accusing him of having blood on his hands. Yeah, well, you, if that's the if that's what we mean by have blood on his hands, then that is the correct interpretation of this. I mean, I people, what you're saying is that had the American government been more sensible, more reasonable, less partisan, fewer people would have died. Is that correct? That is true. That is exactly what I'm saying. I think that there are areas in which we can credit the Trump administration for, have, for having acted wisely. I think in the the massive investments in vaccine research were a very good uh, thing to have done, and they probably saved some lives. Um, they almost certainly saved some lives by having vaccines available sooner than they otherwise would have been. Um, but in politicizing the pandemic in terms of how ordinary people ought to carry themselves and act during the during the moments when the pandemic was most serious, I think that people died a result as a result of his choices in office. Tom, we did a show earlier today with two German authors of a new book about Xi Jinping, um, the Chinese leader in the upcom upcoming uh, week to the 20th Party Congress in China. They call him the most powerful man in the world. The pandemic, of course, began in China um, and it continues to fester and one of Xi's achievements, perhaps, or perhaps one of his weaknesses was his very aggressive, very authoritarian response. How would you compare Xi's response in China to Trump's response in the United States? Do they reflect both the worst and the best qualities of both a democratic and authoritarian system? I think that's a good interpretation of this. One of the strengths of having an authoritarian government is you can enforce compliance upon your citizens, even when they do not, not wish to comply. And the hope is that a regime that is able to enforce compliance in this way chooses uh, compliance in ways that are uh, respectful of human dignity, human freedom, and the ability to continue to win, uh, live one's life as much as possible. I think Xi Jinping over the past 24 months has shown himself to be fairly indifferent to those sorts of concerns. And I think that is plainly a consequence of uh, his being in charge of an authoritarian regime. Democracies, by contrast, allow, allow contestation. We are allowed to criticize our government, and many of us did, um, in ways that are impossible in China today. I mean, and as a consequence, it opens up the possibility for individuals to be suspicious, to refuse to obey, to refuse to take uh, what I think are sensible precautions to protect themselves and others. And that's one of the downsides of, of, a, of living under a democratic regime is that that is possible. Um, I think that there are, there are, however, a number of different examples that we can point to around the world of democratic governments that have responded aggressively in many cases and with real... Um, uh, uh, with real force. Yeah, Thomas, I hope you're not going to mention Denmark here because uh, every time we have these kind of conversations, it's always the Danish model or the Scandinavian model. The Danes always get it right or the Scandinavians get it right. Uh, these Northern European wealthy democracies. What's your scorecard for other countries who have managed this more successfully? I was not thinking about uh, Denmark. Good. Norwegian. Or, or, so Norway I won't mention Norway. Denmark again. In, in, in this case, um, I think I'm happy to tell you about why I'm suspicious of the generalizability of the Danish experience. I think it's much more interesting to look at other really firmly divided partisan presidential democracies, for example, South Korea and Taiwan. These are countries that have had 
really serious political disagreements for decades over the course of their country. There are also countries in which partisan politics seems to suffuse everything. And yet both South Korea and Taiwan proved uh, very capable of enforcing what were some aggressive and, uh, and serious lockdown measures, but they were able to do this in a way that did not involve, for example, the mass detentions of citizens that we see in China. In, uh, in China. Right. Um, the Korean case is interesting. Um, it got a lot of press early on, less now. Ian Bremer wrote an influential piece in Time. Uh, Ian's been on the show. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Scorecarding all these different countries. And like you, he spoke highly or wrote highly about Taiwan, Singapore, and, and, and South Korea. I had a couple of thoughts on that. Firstly, and I know this is a tricky area in political science. I mean, how much of this is cultural? That, uh, And you're an expert on East Asia, that there's simply more obedience in these countries and more respect for government in spite of all the partisan divisions. And secondly, and this is, I think, a bigger issue, uh, he throws... Singapore in with Taiwan and South Korea, which, of course, isn't a democracy. So how would you make sense of all, all the East Asian experience? Yeah, I think for, for the reasons you just said, that the Singapore comparison is going to confound this in difficult ways. And so I'll, I'll hold off on speaking on Singapore for just a second. Um, but I think, it, you know, I, I am not a culturalist. I don't, I don't believe that political culture is a first order explanation for any, for any sort of national outcomes of these forms. Uh, and I do think that it's important to remember that um, many South Koreans are very opposed to their current government, and they are not shy about saying so and acting in this way. And the same is true in Taiwan. These are these are countries that are often viewed as, you know, mono-ethnic, and therefore there are no political cleavages, there are no identitarian cleavages. And you just have to look to the modern um, history of these two countries to look at differences in in, in partisan orientation that suffuse all aspects of, of, of political and social life. Um, and also in the Taiwanese case to what are, what I would interpret as, as ethnic differences between sort of mainlanders and Taiwanese uh, uh, people. So I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's always tempting to say that, for example, Confucian countries are able to withstand pandemics uh, better than their alternatives, but you have, you need to look no further than, the largest Confucian majority country in the world, this would be uh, the People's Republic of China, to see that Confucianism does not automatically generate some sort of... Uh, uh, okay, so I, I take your point, and, I, and uh, you know a lot more about this than me, so I'm not going to argue with you about it. So what did the Koreans and the Taiwanese do in particular that could be emulated or learned from in the United States? Is it technology? I know that Taiwan in particular is very innovative, very pioneering on the digital front. Yeah, so there's two things that I think we should keep in mind about why it's hard to 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 wholehearted or to wholescale adopt the lessons from these two countries. One, we have to remember that they have no land borders that people can cross. South Korea has a land border with North Korea, but people don't cross that border. So, in terms of controlling population movements in and out of the country, those two countries could be hermetically sealed instantaneously, uh, and and in fact they were. Um, so this this does create challenges for. Um, uh, this, this creates opportunities for pandemic management that would not be open to any country in, uh, in Western Europe, um, uh, with the possible exception of the UK and Ireland. Um, uh, the other thing that, that we should learn from these cases is that they had a really serious pandemic uh, a decade previously. So SARS and MERS for them were real, were, were, were real serious 
uh, public health crises that generated kind of institutional capacity that could be uh, deployed once again to handle a pandemic. These were countries that were waiting in some sense for another pandemic to, to break out. And when it did, you know, there were some real tragedies. There were some real, uh, there were some early deaths. And, and uh, one, one, one does not say that any country is perfect in how it's handled the pandemic. But these were countries that were prepared. They had the public health infrastructure and capacity ready to go. And they applied that, I think, with, uh, with, with great effect. Uh, to, to control the spread of the pandemic. And they benefited from a couple of, of, of useful features of, of those two societies. They're not quite as large population-wise as a country like the United States or even a country like Germany or the UK. Um, uh, and they're also, they have like one major city in, in, in each case. There, there are other smaller settlements. No, I, I'm not clear. What you, are you saying these are exceptional or they're not? What can we learn from them? We can learn that what was that they 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 entered the pandemic with some uh, with some call them initial endowments that countries like the United States or Western Europe lacked, like a real attention to uh, a, a flu-borne like illness, like COVID was, um, because of the experiences they had had. Um, our the hope would be that we, like them, can learn from COVID so that the next pandemic that. Do you think we have, though? I mean, Tom, my sense, you've done a lot more thinking and research in this area than me. If there was another COVID outbreak in, in next week or next month or next year, if anything, it's only compounded uh, the partisanship. If anything, it would only compound this conspiracy theory, anti-Chinese theory, uh, neuroses over whether or not you should be, um, uh, uh, whether you should have boosters, whether you should uh, what, what, how you should deal with the, 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 this disease? I, I I wish I could disagree with you on that one, but I do think that you are right that we are that at the sort of popular popular discourse level, we have not learned the same lessons from COVID nineteen that Taiwan and South Korea learned from SARS and MERS. I think we could have. I think a better a better better public health response, in particular in the United States from the Trump administration, could have put us in a much different footing going forward. So you're blaming uh, Trump. Yeah, I mean, I know in the book you suggest that, uh, that there's responsibility on both left and right. But do you think one of Trump's legacies is an inability for America to be ready for the next COVID, the next pandemic? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I, I, have, no, I, have, no, um, uh, I have no doubt that Trump himself bears a substantial portion of the blame for, uh, for the way that the United States has responded to the pandemic and the long-term consequences of that. But he is not purely the problem. It is what not- What about citizens themselves? Uh, Richard Haas has a new book out. I'm gonna be talking to him early next year about the responsibilities of citizens rather than the rights, the responsibilities. I saw a piece in the New York Times today uh, suggesting that half of adults have heard little or nothing about new COVID boosters. You can't blame Donald Trump for that. You can't blame the healthcare companies. You can't blame the media. Don't citizens also have a responsibility for dealing with this stuff? Absolutely. Um, and there's an interesting question about how we want to think about cit democratic citizenship in a time of a pandemic. But I, I will disagree that we cannot blame Trump for that or that we cannot blame the media for that. Um, we, I don't choose the media environment that surrounds me in the United States. This is something that is that exists independently of my own uh, my own my own choices. And I do think that the fact that the current American media environment is so completely islandized between uh, the news channels of the of the hard left and news channels of the hard right and the 
the vacuous news channels at the center is responsible in part for the fact that people simply do not know what's going on around. Vacuous them. being what, CNN? Of the center. Yeah, I put CNN at the moment in the vacuous center, although I, I wouldn't I, disagree. I hope you're not going to put I, I my show in the vacuous center, Tom. Yeah, I don't I don't watch enough of it to have a really strong opinion about it. But I watch enough of the, you know, in, in my my weaker moments, the the flashing lights of the left and the right news channels. And I see nothing other than I, of, when you're traveling through airports, we all have to watch the screens. Right. That's but right. isn't I, isn't the, isn't the story a bit more complicated and ironic and sort of peculiarly tragic. There's a, a chart I saw about the deadly price of pandemic politics. People in Republican counties were more likely to die from COVID-19, a lot of the research suggests. And that's, I'm guessing, partly because of the media ecosystems you suggest we live in, which we clearly do, partly because these people watch Fox, which don't acknowledge how dangerous COVID is or reject the credibility of vaccines, but partly also perhaps because these people have different lifestyles. And COVID, the, the threat of COVID affected different people with different lifestyles very dramatically. So how does that all play into it? Yeah, that's so that's a great point. And one of the, the things that we're able to do in the book is take partisanship into consideration alongside those other issues, such as you know, where people live, what news they watch, what sort of lifestyles they lead, what sort of general concerns and orientations they have towards the world. And because we had we, we planned this, you know, I, I don't know how we managed to do this, but we we had our first survey in the field March 20th of 2020. So we already knew this was going to be a problem and we already started looking for evidence. We were able to plan our survey in ways that was going to anticipate what we knew at the time was going to be questions of how does your partisanship relate to your other features of your life. So who do you, what sort of news do you watch? Where do you happen to live? Urban versus rural, these sorts of things. And I can share with you the headline finding of the book is that even when you take fairly sophisticated measures to, statistical measures to uh, control for or adjust for those other confounding differences, um, we still do see a clear effect of partisanship itself. So we can compare, for example, Democrats and Republicans living in places that were equally urban or rural, that were equally, you know, in a, an urban area of a Republican state, Democrats and Republicans still differed from one another. Likewise, a urban area of a Democratic state, Republicans and different uh, Democrats were likely to differ from one another as well. So we can isolate the role of partisanship amidst all those sort of confounding uh, differences. But that said, those other differences surely do matter. Our explanation for the tragedy of the American pandemic is certainly not monocausal. Uh, and I, I do think that another truly important dimension, two, uh, I'll, I'll mention two, one is race, which kind of right. affects most aspects. Yeah, of and Thrasher uh, talks extensively about that. We haven't even mentioned that. Exactly. And then the other one is urban versus rural scenarios. It's very different if you're living in a place like New York City, a high density place in which to go shopping, you really need to uh, normally access public transportation or things like this. And a rural area, one of our more empty states or more empty part of an empty state. So like I live in a very small town right now and the pandemic was just not nearly as hard for me to manage in a day to day sense as it would have been in somebody living in an urban area. And what about the role of the healthcare system itself, Tom? Um, obviously, America has a unique, perhaps a uniquely problematic healthcare system, criticized from all sides. Um, 
which is inseparable, I think, from the architectural crisis of American politics. How did how do the weaknesses and I guess in some ways the strengths of the American medical system play into pandemic politics? Well, there's a there's two things I want to draw your attention to when it comes to the healthcare system. One is in a way that's probably not true in any circumstance uh, in a country like the UK. United States citizens have to think about how they will pay for the healthcare that they receive. Right, that's just a concern. Um, even if you're wealthy enough not to have to worry about how you'll you'll pay for your for healthcare, how it is delivered is not a simple thing. Um, and so. In, a, in the first instance, the very fact that people may be worried about losing their job in order to receive treatment or to pay for a vaccine means that the United States has to spend time in its pandemic response assembling the public health and social services infrastructure uh, to make that happen. Uh, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing uh, is the fact that the United States uh, healthcare system is not only wobbly and incomplete, uh, and unequal, it's also quite spatially unequal. And so when you think about American healthcare, it, it really is the case that states, the states themselves play a very important role in orchestrating and delivering healthcare. So you have a lot of the decisions about how to manage the pandemic are things that, you know, President Trump may or may not have wanted to try to work on it uh, himself, but these were decisions that had to be made by governors and their own, uh, their, their own state health, uh, public health infrastructures. And that made the healthcare delivery problem more complicated than, another, than it otherwise might have been. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of research right now coming out by scholars of American politics who have viewed the American federal system and the fact that so many things are handled at the state level rather than at the national level as not just like this quirky feature of American politics that allows things like democratic experimentation and things like this, but also as um, as an opportunity for the system as a whole to, to function poorly because its parts don't always function well. Yeah, and we did a show with uh, Jacob Grumbach, who has a new book out about how the crisis of American democracy, the partisanship can be found as much at the local level now as at the federal level. So it seems as if these this federal, uh, the, the, the federal partisanship now is infecting everything at the local level. Let's end, um, and I'm sure you're familiar with his arguments, let's end, Tom, with some fixes. Um, how can we fix American democracy in the context of this conversation without pushing it into a tech, uh, a technocracy, right. making... So, uh, making all politics simply technocratic and scientific, because there's always going to be a need for some degree of partisanship. That is right. Um, and, and some degree of partisanship is not only to be expected, it's also probably healthy. I don't think I want to live in a country in which everybody agrees on what, how we're supposed Absolutely. to I mean, it's, it's, it's natural because we all have, I mean, that's the premise of the founding fathers of democracy. We have different interests and we pursue those interests in different ways. That's why we need politics. That's why we're not angels. That's right. And that's why, and, and, and we, we allow people and we encourage them to mobilize in order to, to press their interests. And that's what the democratic process is supposed to be about. Given this, what do we need? We need, first and foremost, our national leaders to act as if it is a good idea for all Americans to protect one another. That is the single greatest failing of the Trump administration. 
was not arguing that it is the responsibility of all Americans to protect one another. And that is not about erasing partisan differences or enforcing disagreement or turning over the, the keys to the, uh, uh, to the technocrats, but rather it is a, an ethos of democratic citizenship that views one's partisan opponents as nevertheless members of the same policy polity who are deserving of protection because- well, I, I, I take the point and I couldn't agree more, but at the very heart of Trumpian politics is a rejection of that equality. At the very heart of Trumpian politics is the idea that some people living in this country are more American than others, racially, economically, culturally, geographically. It came out in his nonsense about Barack Obama. So how's that ever going to change? Yeah. And this is why the, the Danish example, to be frank, is not very useful, because simply <laughs> wishing that we were all like the Danes would, is not an effective uh, not an effective response. I'm not even sure that we'd like all the details of that model if we could lay them all out. But hold that aside. Um, I do think that it's th that public health messaging from the president ought to matter. And I do think that that's something that most Republican presidents would have done differently. Um, and we can have future Republican presidents who are not uh, you know, narcissistic monsters like President Trump was. Um, and I don't have to agree with their partisan orientations or their policy platforms to agree with the objectives to which they are striving. And I think that's a we we think that that's some some massive task. But you know, the United States has had a long history of of thinking about the common interest above partisan interests. Um, and the latest developments are, I think, reversible. And if they're not reversible, we're in real trouble. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we need to do, and I think this is this is in some senses a, a more difficult problem, is that we need to invest, reinvest in public health infrastructure in a way that de-emphasizes the things that people don't like about politics, like being told you need to get vaccinations before you go to school and things like this, and emphasizes instead things like what public health infrastructure can do. So like we have a number of unresolved problems in American public health, such as you know, absurdly high infant and maternal mortality rates in this country, that the solutions to those would also be solutions to the next pandemic because they would establish for the American people that a government can deliver some public services uh, that are of need to people. And, they, and that can be done in the interests of all rather than only in the interest of some. Finally, uh, Tom, what about the idea of extending the metaphor of the pandemic as, as, as war? Um, would that be a way of making everyone understand that we're all equally responsible and vulnerable? Well, you know, American presidents do like to declare war on things and not just other countries. They like to declare war on drugs. They like to declare wars on terror uh, and so on and so forth. I don't, I can imagine, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure I'm ready to articulate what this vision would be, but I can imagine a war on COVID that is constructed in the public discourse as the duty of Americans um, to come together in order to stamp out this virus. And the helpful thing is that it is, I'm fine stamping out viruses. That sounds like a good idea. In the, and that's a, that's, a, that's a tolerable, not only tolerable, it's a laudable goal in a way that say the war on drugs or the war on terror were a little bit more incoherent than that one. 
All right, it's good stuff. Interesting conversation. Pandemic politics. Uh, one of the three co-authors, Thomas B. Popinski. Congratulations, Tom, on the new book. Important conversation, important subject, especially as we know that COVID hasn't probably gone away and there will be more COVID-style epidemics in the 21st century. What else are you reading these days, Tom? Oh, I distract myself with uh, with good, solid uh, uh, fiction. And so I've the two books that I've read most recently, one is a book uh, by Viet Cang Nguyen uh, called The Sympathizer, which is a really mm. interesting story. You may have encountered it of, uh, of a, of a um, uh, Vietnamese American in Southern California and his relations to his, uh, his parents' homeland. Uh, and the other one is uh, a really nice bit of uh, sort of, a, uh, sort of more, uh, more provocative French fiction, the book The Map and the Territory by Michel Lebec, um, whose work I find uh, really evocative for describing some of the anxieties and the malaise of, of modern life. Um, and I recommend both of those for very different reasons to anybody who's listening right now.